Welcome to the Spirit Anointing the Word, the podcast of Highland Church, Jamaica, New York, with Pastor Subash Cherian. We're so glad to have you with us today, and we're excited about God's Word because it gives us strength and hope for each and every day. Let's listen as Pastor Subash shares this powerful message. Father, we stand on the threshold of the throne room of God, a throne room of grace and mercy, because of what our Lord Jesus Christ did and we're so grateful to you, Abba Father. And we come joining together in worship and praise and exaltation of the Most High God, our Father, our Daddy, Abba in heaven. Thank you for your love. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather here on the Lord's Day and celebrate your goodness, your grace, your mercy, and we're grateful to you. We ask, O oh Holy Spirit, minister to us, O oh God. Bring us closer to the throne room of grace and mercy, that we may behold this greatness, this power, his majesty, through Christ our Lord. Precious Lord, touch lives today. There are people that need you, people that have desperate situation and you know that deepest side people of God who are going through griefs and pain loss and situations oh God only you can change and you can avert and some are crossed between oh God a hard line and limitations only you can set them free and I speak the word of God as you spoke to Lazarus come out of the tomb for those that have been enclosed by the works of the enemy or by the prisons of their own mind Lord Jeff they would know the truth and the truth would set them free and they would be free indeed this morning and I pray God minister to people here and those that are watching and let your name be glorified together we join in giving you glory giving you honor giving you praise through Christ Jesus our Lord and God's people said amen and amen give the Lord a clap offering it's so good to be in the house of the Lord We're embarking on a subject that we began, and it's to do with the throne room of God, His mercy, His grace. It's a very exhaustive subject, and I won't be able to cover all of it, but just to talk about today, uh, to do with number one, the throne, and that is the throne room of God. And number two, I'll be talking about the many thrones that are found in the book of Revelation, particularly. And number three, the people or objects surrounding the throne room of God. And number four, the worship due to his name. And number five, our God reigns. No matter what situation you may go through, no matter what the world may be undergoing, ultimately we need to understand God reigns. And Isaiah 52, 7 tells us we need to proclaim that our God reigns. I want to begin with this passage by reading from from Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. John the Beloved says, And I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were the voice of a trumpet talking to me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show you things which must come hereafter. We did about things that were past and things hereafter from then now onwards, It is moving on from what earlier he talked to the seven churches, now moving on to hereafter, the future. 
But I want to just focus, number one, the I looked and behold a door. The first thing that John, the beloved, sees is, and it says, behold, look, there is a door. That's striking. And I know one day we will enter into the presence, it will be a door through the Lord Jesus, John chapter 10, verse 7, and verse 9, I'm the door. And I want you to understand the great joy of entrance. And, but here in this case, John the Beloved is basically taken uh, in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he's taken in the Spirit to get a glimpse of what is heaven. And the description not only uh, is amazing as you look at the things that is to come to pass and that will come towards the end and the culmination of the ages, but he begins by talking about the dough and where the dough leads you. And the voice he heard is, come up hither and I will show you. I know we've heard so much things about heaven and so much things of the greatness and the beauty. Heaven is a real place. And I want you to understand, as real as earth is, but nothing compared, nothing, nothing can compare with the beauty and the, and the scene of heaven. As much as we would want to say there's so much we could talk about, and we read so many things from books about people with their walk to heaven or their going to heaven, and many a times they focus on the golden uh, streets and the and the pearly gates and so forth, that is not the centrality. In fact, those are dime a dozen down there. It's basically everything is, I'll talk about the foundation and all of that, that's nothing. But when you look at what John is saying, he says the door was open and right off the bat there is a door. And the Lord talks earlier in chapter 3, I'm setting before you a door that will remain locked and it'll be locked if I lock it, but I will open and no one can close it. So there's no one can open the door except God and no one can close the door except God. So here in this passage, he sees a door. And then the door is opened and the first glimpse he has, I will talk to you, but he hears this powerful word, come up hither. You know, for us, it would be something like, well done, good and faithful servant, if we have been good and faithful, and when we, if we have eternity in our mind, it's a great welcome. But for John the Beloved, come up hither, I'm going to show you something. Many of us have heard of uh, the Queen of Sheba coming from Abyssinia, this is Ethiopia, coming to see the things that she heard about Solomon. And so ultimately she does come, obviously an invitation from Solomon to say, come up hither. And she does go, and First Kings chapter 10 and verse 7 tells you what her experience was. I mean, she said, I'm paraphrasing, I thought the whole thing was an exaggeration. Really, half of it was not told to me. I'm amazed, I'm shocked, I'm shell stunned. It is spectacular. The things leading to David's house, the temple, the palace, and the attendants, and the way the cupbearers, and the whole formation is extravagantly, amazingly organized and so spectacular. And she goes on to say, the half was not told to me. What I thought was an exaggeration is no exaggeration. On the contrary, I wasn't told the whole thing. 
We have no idea what heaven is. Even the finest and the best that we can think is no comparison to what it will ultimately be. It is beyond our comprehension. It's beyond our human mind. Paul talks about an experience, but he's humble. He doesn't say it's himself. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 4, he says, I know a man 14 years ago who went to heaven, and he says, which is caught up in paradise, and he says, heard unspeakable things which is not lawful for me to utter. It is not possible for me to speak about it. Words cannot express it. I'm not permitted to speak about it. Elsewhere, I think in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9, he again talks about it. But what he says is, High at not seen, nor hear heard, Neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. I can never see it. Yes, can never comprehend it. Far beyond sight and sound. The human dimension cannot go to that level. Higher than the three dimension. The best of the best that we could even bring what technology can bring about is nothing in comparison to what ultimately we will see with our own eyes and what we will hear with our own ears. This is so incredibly amazing. And so when you go further in chapter 4 and verse 2, the door swings open and this is the centerpiece. What John the Beloved says, immediately I was in the Spirit. And behold, this is the grand tour. This is the greatest focus. This is the centerfold. This is the centerpiece. Look, not about the streets, not about the pearly gates, not about all the eloquence and the beauty of all that is far majestic. Behold a throne. Everything stems from that throne. Life and the issues of life comes from this throne. And I'm not talking about a throne like a cross without the Savior. It's just a simple word. The throne is important because of the one that sat on the throne. And so there's an occupant on that throne and he's the Lord God Almighty. It is exquisite. It is unbelievable. It's unspeakable. I had not seen nor ear heard. And we will be amazed at the beauty of the first thing we see in heaven is a throne. I know a lot of people will be afraid because of judgment and because of the white throne judgment. I want you to know this, that while talking about the distinctiveness of the throne and the exquisite quality and characteristics of the throne, we must not forget the one on the throne, the description that our Lord Jesus Christ gives is amazing. Without losing any of his characteristic or distinctiveness, we must understand the person that sits upon him, upon the throne. 
And so we come to this awesome place just to give you a brief idea. You know, many a times we tend to think of, uh, of royalty or king. King comes with a kingdom. Kingdom comes with a king and principalities. And there's always a throne. Now, for us, that comes from a democratic, uh, what would be republic, and we vote people in. We have a hard time comprehending the throne. And those who live in kingdoms with kings have a bad example, like many people find it hard to relate to a father in heaven because they have a lousy father on earth. And for those kingdoms that have a king, they're dictators in the wrong way. I mean, everything that is evil. However, I want you to understand, whenever the Lord Jesus Christ gave an example, it was not about a democratic country. In that sense of the word, a ruler, a king, and this is to do with uh, absolute justice, total integrity and justice and loving, gracious, everything that we wanted a king to be. It's hard for us in the United States to understand because we have a hard time. We tend to think that we elect people. No, God elects people. Nobody elects God. One of the things we need to understand is absolute, is powerful, is reign, is rule, is supreme. I talked about why this earth is in a mess because as wise region, Adam and Eve gave it completely to Satan. And one day he'll be dislodged. Until then, we have to deal with the fall of man and the fallen nature of man. And one day things would be restored. But what he's doing is restoring the man before he restores the domain. And ultimately, the Bible says, with the total emancipation of the sons of God in chapter 8 of the book of Romans, then all of the things, creatures that he was once in charge of, whether it's the animal kingdom or vegetal kingdom or mineral kingdom or whatever there is, which is polluted, not because of God, the acts of God, it was acts of man, by giving it away, will be corrected. And then, the, until then, there's the earth begins to warm it out. There's such a pain in the creation. But one day, it will be set right, and we will know that everything that we find about where animals and birds and and even a child can put his hand into the cobra's den, viper's den, and not be bitten. And lamb and a wolf can go with a lion, and they would not be eating each other. So you're going to find there's peace in the valley, there's peace within and peace outside. But what we need to understand when it comes to rulership, we must understand when it comes to God, it's not about democracy. It's total about Him being absolute ruler. He's total. We don't have a perfect example. I think the best we can say is we came out of a kingship 247 years ago. Fourth of July we celebrated. And wasn't a great king. But nevertheless, we are not in any better place than any other nation. Better in terms of democratic and, demo uh, and the fact that it has brought about freedom in such great extent. But even then, the best example I could tell you could be UK when it comes to royalty. And even then, um, the young prince, Charles, he basically can sign a legislation and he can basically sign something to dismiss the government. Apart from that, he's a figurehead. Prime ministers and the ministers, they do most of the things. So we could take Saudi Arabia or UAE, but again, it's a family run. And so when you think about uh, 
MDS, who's the vice regent, he cannot do anything without his father, Abdulaziz, who's the king. And again, many a times in most of these uh, Arab nations, it's rather a clannish thing. So it's not absolute. They still have a sense of counsel. The best example and the worst of it can be found in the Sultanate of Borneo. That man is total, complete dictator and monarch. From A to Z is everything, and he's a billionaire by many, many uh, exceeding everything else that we can think about. But again, that's as absolute and supreme in that power that he is, it's not a total picture, uh, it's not truly, uh, he's near to corrupt, that's the best we can say. But when you're talking about rulership, something like that, total, complete, absolute, but in the most positive way, what theocracy should be, and I have to say something, many say we got to have a theocratic government. Theocratic government, when it started in Israel, was God was king until they said, we want a king like all the other nations. So they substitute a man, Saul, the best I could say of all the kings was one man, David, and even he had a checkered past. But when you talk about the kingship, there is one that would be the total, complete, what you call the virtuous, everything that you think in terms of which all religions and all philosophies and all forms of government would want to aspire, cannot attain, is that one king that will sit on the throne of David. But I want you to know that represents, that represents an ultimate kingdom, and that is what we're talking about. I think the best human example I could give is Nebuchadnezzar. He was an absolute monarch, not great, corrupt, murderous. But being that so, he was overpowered by another, which is uh, the Persians, the media Persians. And then you had Cyrus, a good king, but not perfect. But just to give you an example, even this man, Nebuchadnezzar, actually comes to a realization about God. And, and if I were to take to a, a passage in the book of Daniel, you're going to find what is interesting is he talks about this uh, king that he comes to a recognition of. And so when you turn to Daniel chapter 4 and verse 3, he gives you a little bit of this in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 3, and he says here, uh, how great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion from generation to generation. So he comes to a glimpse of what would be the ultimate. Of course, uh, he learned it from a practical event. Thank God for Daniel directing him. In fact, he had a dream. And he, that's how uh, Daniel was able to interpret it. And towards the end, the interpretation thereof is, is uh, basically made known to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, this absolute dictator. And here in chapter 2 and verse 44, he gives you a glimpse in which he says, And in the days of the king shall God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. 
So the interpretation of what he heard about the statue being knocked down by a stone that becomes a rock and that becomes a boulder that basically smashes everything and there's only one king and kingdom will remain. So God had given a dream in which God helps Daniel to interpret towards the last days that would come about. But I want you to understand Daniel himself had a powerful vision of something that was taking place and I want to read from chapter 7 and from verse 9 all the way to verse 14. I want you to listen to what he talks about. And he's almost like Daniel, uh, like John uh, having a glimpse. But John was in heaven in the spirit, whereas Daniel was in his dream. And let me read this. I beheld till the thrones were cast down. Again, there were many thrones. They were cast down. And the ancient of days did sit whose garment was white as snow, and hair of his head were like the pure wool. That's basically what John saw in Revelation chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, albeit that was of the Lord Jesus. But this is ancient, talking about someone else, that is God Almighty. And goes on to say, His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire, just like Ezekiel saw in his own visions. And a fiery steam issued and came forth from before him. Thousands ministered unto him. Ten thousand times ten thousand I stood, stood before him. And the judgment was set and the books were opened. And I beheld them because of the voice of the great words which, which, which the horn spake. I beheld till the beast was slain. Talking about the beast and the ultimate things that will happen. And verse 14 in verse 13, he says, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, now listen to what he says, one like the Son of Man come with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion, glory, and kingdom that all people, nations, and languages serve, shall serve him. And, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which will not be destroyed. I'd like to just go into verse 27 as well. And the kingdom and dominion and greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. You don't hear about the church after chapter 3. And from then on, the church is merged into the people of God together with the Old Testament redeemed. Remember, the Old Testament looked towards the blood by faith, and the Old New Testament looks again back to what took place by faith and everything because of the blood of the Lamb. And, goes, and of course, they are considered saints or servants. And it goes on to say in verse 27, as I close with this, the greatness of the kingdom under the whole earth shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions shall serve and obey him. First, let me say that when you talk about the door opening, the first thing that John, the beloved, John the Apostle sees is the throne. And what is so unique is one that sat upon the throne. Now, I want you to understand the picture of God sitting on the throne is triumphant, is jubilant, and it is powerful. It should stay in our mind because there are so many thrones competing for that ultimate throne. Even Satan tried to sit on the throne. There's only one. 
And he was always there, and long after the entire thing is over, he still be there. Long after time is merged into eternity, there is that one throne and one that sits on the throne. The way that John finds it describing is so difficult because he is indescribable. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So we need to realize the focus is on that one that sits on the throne, and yet he is hard to describe. The best he could do was <coughs> give you the various radiant, sparkling, uh, what would be celestial glory that comes from out of that throne <coughs> without giving you any description of the one himself. But let's just talk about everything proceeds from the throne, or what I would call the center uh, the centerpiece of the entire universe. So if we were to look at it in a rather <clears throat> worldly way, in the natural way, we see everything in a circular motion. And we tend to think everything around the sun. And yet I want you to understand our galaxy and going beyond it, everything is in a circular motion. And if we could look at it with the, the best and the most powerful telescope, it is the galaxy and everything that is around still in a circular motion. And if we could get a little more powerful telescope, if technology would invent something better, we would see more of it in a circular motion. But if we could get it from a perceptive of heaven, from a perspective from heaven, and look at it from heavenward, all of this, what we see and what we do not see, what we can just imagine and what is beyond our comprehension, far humongous, far greater than even any concept or any understanding or any way that we could print it into or imagine, they're all vast and so vast, so many, that it's like a speck of dirt. Everything put together that cannot be measured, cannot be in light years. But they're all in a circular motion. And looking from a heavenly perspective, you're going to find the entire thing circle around the throne. So if you think that is huge, that we can't even imagine, that we can't even fathom, that we can't even measure, then think about what heaven is. It cannot be measured. Think about the very presence, and that's a centerpiece, the throne in the midst of it all. If sun is huge and the entire planet system around it, think about it as mere little, little dot compared to the throne in which the entire circular motion of the heaven. But that apart from the things we don't see, far greater, far more luminous, far more mighty, in a circular motion around that throne. And the uniqueness is the one that sits in the center. He is almighty. He is sovereign. He is powerful. It's his domain, it's his reign, it's his rule. And he is full of authority and supremacy. Nothing beyond the one that sits on the throne. But then, why doesn't he control? He's given us a free choice. 
He's not interfering with our choice, and everything we do will determine our rewards in heaven. He could have straightened out and flattened out everything here. He could have righted everything, but <coughs> what he does is give an opportunity for heaven and eternity in our hearts that we might, while we live on this earth, while we do what we are doing in this earth, live with heaven focus and eternity in our hearts. And ultimately, when everything else is said and done, what we did here on earth, and only one life is given, what we did on earth and the decision we make will ultimately be the rewards and the crowds that we receive. <clears throat> so God has allowed this, and of course, until then, Satan seems to rule. He's the prince of this world. But what he, we need to know is Satan still is a tool of God. Satan is powerful, but God is all-powerful. Satan is mighty, but God is almighty. And I want you to understand, in the grand scheme of things, we're not here without a purpose. There is a purpose. So we might measure our success. We might measure how great or how successful or how important we are by the things of the world. That's not how it's measured. When we stand before God, it is what counts. Even though you might have the greatest castle on earth and the greatest ship on this earth, when you go to heaven, my friend, it's nothing compared. What you have will ultimately last the most 100 years if you can live that long. Then it's past. When time is merged in eternity, it's not that 100 years, it will be like a few seconds. But eternity has just begun. And forever and forever, your success, your accomplishment is on heavenly standards. You could have been rich and prosperous for a second and yet a pauper for eternity. Now, I want you to understand we're put in this world and the situations we face is for a purpose. That while our salvation is because of what Christ did, our rewards are based on what we do in the most difficult of circumstances. With eternity in our hearts, heaven-minded, and yet being focused while doing things of the earth that we need to do, we are at best ambassadors for the kingdom of God here on earth. So when we look at this passage, everything centers in eternity and throughout it is on that one that sits upon the throne he is the centerpiece never forget that everything else is immaterial people talk about prosperity and you can have the everything you want but when life is over what would it mean you have just scraped through to heaven because of the blood and I want you to understand there are mansions that you cannot even imagine that you wish it was yours and then you realize, what did I do for God while I was on earth? Was I looking for my own gain or for the kingdom gain? So when you look at the heavenly point, it's not how rich you are on earth, it's how rich you are towards God. It's not how much the world thinks about you, it's how much the king and the one on the throne thinks of you.
So when you look at it from the heavenly point, let's look at it in a circular motion. Everything moving around the throne, far beyond your human eyes could even comprehend or think or imagine. And right in the center, far beyond, light years could measure, and you can get a picture of what John sees. In chapter 4 and verse 2, Behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one that sat on the throne. Get a picture of that one. When Jesus comes into your life, so to speak, you have this great one into your heart. When you have Jesus into your life and make him the Lord, you are making him the creator, the Lord God, the king and Lord of your life. Everything I said proceeds from the throne. Let's just read a couple of verses from chapter 4. Let's read verse 4. Round about the throne were four and twenty seats. These were lower thrones, but thrones nevertheless with twenty-four elders. So round about is humongous. There are twenty-four thrones. Twenty-four elders. In verse 5, out of the throne, not only just round about, it's centered around about, but even out of the throne proceeds lightnings and thunders and voices. There were seven lambs. It is powerful. Verse 6 goes on to say, and before, not only round about, not only from out of the throne, but before the throne, there was a sea of glass. It's not talking about glass. It looks like glass. It's vast sea, but unlike any sea that we've seen on earth. It doesn't have the tsunami. It doesn't have the waves that will topple. It doesn't frighten you. It's far greater than a three dimension. You can walk and it's like a cloud. It's like the water. And like Jesus Christ, you could walk over it and you could see still down and you could go down. But it is described as a sea of glass. There's no words that John could express. There's nothing that he could explain. It's far beyond words. And then again, look at chapter 6 towards the end. It says, out of the midst and in the midst of the throne, and again, round about the throne, were four beast full of eyes. Another translation does it better because the word beast thinks of, you think of cattle and cows and, and so forth. No, these are living creatures. That is far beyond John to explain. They're so close and their eyes are wide around the throne. Anything that happens, they would know. And so this is the living creatures out in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were these four living creatures, very powerful. So we get an idea, out, round, from, before, the throne seems to be in the center. If you were to measure it by the galaxies and everything, 
they would be puny compared to all that is in the center fold. That is the focus. That is the, what John says. Behold! The throne is in the center and the one that sits upon the throne. The 24 elders, the four beasts. You have the lambs, you have the seven spirit or the sevenfold part of the Holy Spirit. It is humongous, it is mighty. Let's do number two, a little bit about the thrones. In the Bible, we don't have time. There's so much is exhaustive, uh, inexhaustive. But let me just say this. The throne is mentioned 180 times, 88 times in the Bible. But the, just the book of Revelation alone has 42 times. What it simply means is so much of the book of Revelation revolves around the throne. So the throne seems to be important. The king and the kingdom seems to be important. And so when you read about it, you come to a realization that the will of God, the heart and the center of everything, must be the throne. And the one that sits upon the throne. And he, we cannot see him, at least with our naked eyes, one day we will. But that's the reason God who cannot be seen sends the one. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. We beheld his grace. And we get to understand what the one that we cannot see can be seen. We recognize the transcendent God. And when we say transcendent, it means far beyond distance would measure, far beyond we could comprehend, far beyond what we could hear. Transcendent, beyond unfathomable, unimaginable. And yet, that he is. He is high and lifted up. He is everlasting. He is unchangeable. And yet, God so loved the world, he brings the world closer to him through Christ. Bridges the gap and we're able to see the Almighty because in Christ we see him. So we find the amazing aspect of transcendent, God become an eminent, close, so close that he is within us. That we have this throne and this king in our heart while we live in this world, sin-sick world, but ultimately we'll be transformed into ultimately the kingdom, literal kingdom of God. And we shall behold him, our very eyes, and we'll ever be grateful to the one called the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And we see his picture too. I want you to understand, from a point of view, several times the throne is mentioned, but in the book of Revelation it becomes more relevant. So let's again, number one is the throne of God. And you find this in a marvelous way. Let's just take a couple of the thrones, and then we'll go into what is closer in terms of that throne. We talk about the throne that is found in chapter 4 and verse 2. That's the throne of God. 
chapter 3 and verse 21, now it's the Lord Jesus Christ saying, and I want you to understand what he says. He says, to him that overcometh, will I grant to him to sit in my throne. That's the words, words of the Lord Jesus. Even as I also overcame and am sat down with my father in his throne. So the way I overcome, you will too. You will sit with me in my throne. I want you to realize something. We're not created robotic. I wish we were. We wouldn't be creating all this mess. But God created us in his image, and we are triune being, spirit, soul, body. The spirit is not the body, and the body is not the soul. But yes, the spirit is spirit, the soul is soul, and the body is body. So if you were to have an ailment, you go to physical doctor, that basically is physical, psychic, or those that will help you in the soul, and then spiritual that will help you in the spirit. And yet you're not treating all the three, you're treating one, and one is interrelated to the other, and yet it's not three person, it's one. And, but that's a small, uh, uh, not a great analogy to talk about God, but let me just say this. When you look into chapter 4 and verse 9 and 10, you see another throne. And here it says, and when these living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and forever, verse 10 goes on to say, that very moment the 24 elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and forever and cast their crowns to the throne. Uh, cast their crowns before the throne. They have crowns, and I want you to understand there are five crowns that saints will have. I will talk about that. I mentioned the last message. But there's something else we need to realize. When you turn to chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, again you're going to find this is the multitude. This is talking about art from all nation and tongues and kindreds. And it says here, and, and this I beheld, and look, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. And verse 10, and cried with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Only the redeemed saints can say they are saved by the blood of the Lamb. But when you turn to chapter 7 and and go into verse 15, look what it says in the same chapter. It goes on to say, Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve him night and day in his temple, and he that sits on the throne shall dwell among them. Verse 17 in the same chapter goes on to say, For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, shall lead them into the living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There's a lot of regrets. Why didn't I do better? Why didn't I live with eternity in my heart while I was on earth? I want you to understand, friends, you do not get born back again into that one life. Treasure it. Live with certainty. While making the best while you're on earth, make the best 
for eternity as well. Seek first the kingdom, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, everything else after that. So as you go into this passage, look into what it says in chapter 19 and verse 4 and 5. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne saying, Hallelujah, Amen, Hallelujah. And then verse 5, and a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his saints, and you that fear him, both small and great. It is praise the Lord, all you his saints. We have so much to praise God for. While there is a symphony of praise throughout, God says praise for those who have so much to give thanks to God for. When you turn to chapter 20 and verse 4, you have these words again, and it says, And I saw throne, and that sat upon him, upon them, and this is a different throne. And when you turn to verse 11 of chapter 20, again, you're finding this verse. And I saw a great throne, a great white throne, and him that sat on it from whom, whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. In other words, anything else is so insignificant before the one that sits upon it. He created all. When you turn to 21 and verse 1, um, I'm sorry, yeah, 21 and I believe verse 5, Revelation 21 and verse 5, and he that sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new, and he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Now when you go to 22 and verse 1, you hear these words, and he showed me a pure river, a river of water of life, clear as crystal proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. That proceeds out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, I just want to explain in verse 3, a sort of mystery. When you turn to verse 3, and there shall be no more curse. Uh, there's no rust, there's no rotten things. In fact, the best, you can go away for a long time and you can seal the house and air condition the house and put it pure as you could. <coughs> you come back a year, there's still dust and there's still rust. We're in this world. But there's nothing like that in heaven. There's not a single rust, there's not a single dust. Dust is of the enemy. And you find nothing of this world, no curse, no nothing. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. The Revised Standard Version says, and his servants and the saints shall worship him. Now, I want you to figure this out. The throne of God and the throne of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servant shall serve him. Serve them? It says him. Rather hard to express this, but let me put it in a word that we could understand. When God made man and then 
Eve and join them together. Listen to what he says in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. The twain shall be one flesh. One? Supposed to be two, right? One. Yes, that is Mr. Adam and this is Mrs. Adam, but they are Adam's one. When you turn to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 31, Paul is expressing that when he's talking about the church. But he gives the analogy of the man and woman and says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they, shall, and they too shall be one flesh. The Lord Jesus Christ expressed that in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 5. And look at how he uses that. For this call shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. That's what he expressed in Mark chapter 10 and verse 8 as well. Exact words. And they twain shall be one flesh, so they are no more two, but one flesh. Now this could be explosive. And the Jews took up stones to tone Jesus because of this word that he used. And if you were to go into uh, this passage in John chapter 10 and verse 30, look what he said in this particular passage, John 10 and verse 30, I and my father are one. Coming back to chapter 19, uh, chapter 21 and verse 3, we're told here that he leads us and they shall be my people and they shall be their God and, and verse chapter 22 and verse 3, uh, we go back to chapter 22 and verse 3, goes on to say that his servants, plural, shall serve and the Greek word serve also means worship him. And that is also the same thing in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. But what is interesting is you see the throne elsewhere as well in the Bible. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, when King Uzziah died, here is what Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train fills the temple, and the angels cry holy. I saw the Lord in a time when my uncle died, when a close one went to be with the Lord. Heaven got to be so close to me. I suddenly realized I'm not just earth. I have heaven perspective. And the king, could King Uzziah died? It was the end of Isaiah. But when he went into the temple, he saw the Lord. Of course, there were other things in the temple. That was not what he was looking for. Let's not be mesmerized by the man on the pulpit, by the choir, thank God for them all. Let's not be mesmerized by all the article things that you see. It's nothing. This is just a pig pen for us to sit, the best I can say. No, it is just a place better than a pig pen. It's for the sheep pen. Nothing more than that. But we are here to get a glimpse of God. If we haven't got that, all we did was to come to a sheepfold and see other sheep. We need to see the shepherd. Can you say amen? The Lord Jesus Christ. It's only in times of calamities. 
It's only in times of loss and grief. It's only in a time of pandemic we get closer to heaven than we have ever been before. But I want you to realize in a time when they were in a crossroad, the king of Judah and the king of Israel, King Ahab and Jehoshaphat, they should never have been closed. King Ahab was a wicked king. But because King Jehoshaphat was persuaded, they went out to battle against an enemy and they were lost. They had no water. And they approached the prophet, the true prophet of God, Micaiah. And he basically told them that they were in the wrong. But however, listen to what he sees and what he explains to them. In 2 Chronicles chapter 18 and verse 18, I like this word when he says, hear the record, I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne and all the host of heaven standing on his right hand and on his left. In other words, everything terrestrial, everything that's celestial, everything, whether it is seraphims and cherubims, archangels or whatever, the 24 elders or the four beasts and the redeemed saints, I saw them, they are host of heaven on his left side and right side, and God is in the center. What a marvelous way to describe the amazing God. Psalm 11 and verse 4 brings it out as the psalmist says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes beheld, the eyelids beheld, the children of men. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. You know, we did this in chapter 45 of the book of Psalm, talking about the royalty and the king. But when you turn to verse 5, the psalmist is saying, uh, Psalm 45 and verse 6, Thy throne, this is God the Father saying to the Son, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Thy scepter is, the, is a scepter of thy kingdom, is a right scepter. Uh, we'll talk about it next Sunday from uh, Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, where Jacob prophesied Judah, the scepter shall not depart out of Judah. And the words of the, Lord, of the, words of the Father to the Lord Jesus Christ in Psalm 110 and verse 1. And it's amazing, the Lord said unto my Lord, the Lord, the Almighty God, said unto the Lord, sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool, which is what ultimately will come to pass before wrapping up the entire and the consummation of all ages, before we enter into a new heaven and a new earth. But let me just focus on something very important. And that is to do with what is close by and surrounding the throne before we go into the ultimate, which is the praise and the worship of chapter 4 of the Father and chapter 5 of the Lamb. But the objects and personals that are around the throne is very important. And we're talking about galaxies far away, and that's out of your sight. When you look at the focus, it's right there, centerfold, right there. The centerpiece is the throne room, the throne of God, and the one that sits upon it. So let's go back to chapter 4 of the book of Revelation, and verse 2 is number 1. Look! Voila! A throne was set in heaven. That simply means bang in the midst of massive humongous praise cannot be measured 
is what is so significant, what is so important, what is so powerful, is that throne and the one that sits upon it. What you find is closest and the only reason that John was able to behold the one that sits upon the throne is found in verse 3. I was in the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that helps us to get a glimpse of, uh, of heaven. Of course, John is still alive, and so he had to be in the Spirit. One day when this mortal shall put on immortality and, and uh, we shall be changed, in a twinkling of an eye, we shall behold him. But until then, it's by the Spirit of God. Only the Holy Spirit enables us to see eternity. And when you look at the way he mentions it, uh, he's put in seven, it says here, in chapter 5 and verse 6, we get a mention of him. Uh, it says here, and the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. And well, you can see that again in chapter 4, and you can read again about the Holy Spirit in verse 5. Let's go to chapter 4 and verse 5, and you read that. And out of the throne proceeds lightnings and thunders, voices. There were the seven lamps of, of fire burning before, which are the seven spirits of God. You mean there are seven spirits? No, one spirit, just like he has nine gifts and nine fruit, dividing severally as evil, is the sevenfold manifestation of the one Holy Spirit. We talked about the sevenfold, and we read that in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2. It's the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, and the spirit of understanding, and the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of God. Now, when you go into these passages, you're going to find this is the power of the Holy Spirit closest to the throne. We get a description of God, and like I mentioned, it's hard to describe. So in chapter 4 and verse 3, how could you describe God you cannot see? The best way that John could describe is the sparkling radiance and the awesomeness of his, of his great glorious shining light that comes and is glittering in many colors. He talks about his jasper, something like a crystal, like a diamond. Sardine, it's uh, like a precious ruby or emeralds around. This is so powerful. This is so interesting because you cannot express God to say except the light that shines. And whenever you see things about God, it's the light. It's a sparkling glory. And uh, there's no words to accept, uh, express it. The best we can talk about is the Shekinah glory, the presence of Jesus Christ that was tabernacled in the box. And then in the temple, and now in our hearts today, the temple of God. But what is so interesting is, when you look at the heart of God, you're looking at someone he likes, and he calls them sapphires, he calls them diamonds, he calls them precious stones. You find in the New Testament, gems, but you find in the Old Testament, in chapter 28, verse 17 and verse 18, the high priest had to carry, it's a belt around after all his uh, priestly garment, you find that he carries 12 stones, six on one side, six on the other, and all of these stones are mentioned in the book of Revelation, starting with Jasper and so forth and so forth. More interesting is the fact when you turn to Revelation chapter 20, uh, 
and verse, uh, Revelation 21 and verse 20, verse 19, you're going to find the very foundation of the kingdom of heaven. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 19, and the foundations, the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. I mean, this is just the foundation. Not earth, not mud. But it says the first was Jasper, the second was Sapphire, the third was Caldoni, and the fourth was Emerald, the fifth was, goes on and on and on and on. It's just a foundation. So splendor, so mighty, but you don't see the earth. We live about it. But this is far beyond what is called four-dimensional, third-dimension. You can see everything in and out because you're in the spirit. It's so grandeur. Let me give you an example. In this next number four, you find the first is you find the throne of God, the one who sits on it, the Holy Spirit. Number three, the description of God. You can't describe him except in the best of the shining, sparkling glory. But number four, you're going to find in chapter four and verse three again. Look what it says here. And round about the throne, it was, says, was a rainbow round about the throne. I talked about the last time the rainbow is half a circle in, on this earth. Because we can't see under the earth. But in heaven, it's such a sight. This throne of God is covered not with a half, but with a full rainbow. In other words, you walk down and you approach the throne, you can see far greater than the three dimension. It's hard to explain. You can see the throne and you can see the rainbow up and you can see the rainbow down. I mean, it's like walking on a glass and seeing everything under it as well. It's something that you can only imagine and still never really get it. But it says the rainbow. Why rainbow? Because when you go to Genesis chapter 9, verse 13 and 14, remember God made a covenant. And this rainbow is a reminder God will never break his covenant. He's a covenant-keeping God. And that is the awesomeness of God. And this is great and mighty God who does great and mighty things. When you turn to chapter, uh, again, chapter 4, and we'll come to a close right here and begin next Sunday. Listen to what he says in verse 4. Round the throne were 24 elders. There's a lot of things about the 24 elders. They say they're supposed to be maybe archangels or something of a higher celestial order. But most people say would be the 12 of the Old Testament, the 12 of the New Testament, the patriarch and the apostles. A representation of the Old Testament church and the New Testament church which are in the book of Revelation, saints or servants of God. They are very close to God. But whatever it is, it is a place of great honor and great position. Round about the throne. And again, circular in motion, 24 seats. And upon the seats, I saw 24 sitting clothed in white raiment. They had their heads crown of gold. You can read that in chapter 5 and verse 8 as well. Several times they are mentioned. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the throne, before the Lamb, having each one of them harps and golden veils full of odors of fragrance, which are the prayers of the saints. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 4 as well. You can read a lot about them, 
But in Revelation chapter 19, verse 4, and the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshiped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. Let's go a little deeper and then you see something else which is in chapter 4 and verse 5 and you find this what is called proceeds lightnings and thunder. I explained about it last Sunday and voices, the voice of praise, symphony of praise and there were seven lambs of fire burning. If you were to go to the closest thing that was in the Old Testament would be the innermost that is called the sanctorium, holiest of holiest. And in the holiest of all years, the priest had to do things in total darkness. And yet you find there was the light of the seven candlestick. You find that in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 37. And again, the Holy Spirit speaks of light and life that comes to us. Back to chapter 4 and verse 5, you something else interesting. Okay, thou shalt make seven lambs thereof. Okay, that's we finished that. And out of the throne proceed lightnings, and before the throne are the seven spirits of God. And verse 6, let's read that. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like the crystal. Remember in chapter 22 and verse 1, we read before the throne was the river like crystal, and uh, the cr uh, proceeding out of the throne of God, it is something so majestic. Nothing we could even fathom or imagine. There's nothing like that in this world. And I want you to understand, while we live in this world, never lose sight of the fact there is a heaven so magnificent, so beautiful. And heaven is a literal place, but the place is because of the person who sits on the throne. And that is what is so majestic. But of course, there's so much beauty that you can hear about heaven, but it has to proceed from the one. And to know him, not only as Lord, not only as everlasting, but to know him as Lord and Savior. Let me just close with this. The next time we'll continue. While I will be talking about the excellency of the throne, while I will be talking about the greatness of the throne, never forget this. Because in the New Testament, you get a glimpse of the one that makes the throne closer to us. We have someone in heaven that we can relate to. And that makes the throne even more important. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1, I want you to read this powerful passage. Now, of the things which you have spoken, this is a sum. This is what the Hebrew says. This is a sum and substance. Tell me what it is. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. He is there interceding for us. He's related to the one and one with the Father and he is one of us. And he's the mediator. Now I want you to understand, without losing the distinctiveness of the holiness and the height and the greatness of that throne, without losing the fact that it is so crystal, it is so majestic, it is so glorious, that at the very mention of the four beasts, when they praise, everybody falls on their feet. It is so majestic. And we should not lose sight of the fact there is a reverential fear that we say, our Father, 
Yes, he's Yahweh. Yes, he's Elohim. Yes, he's all of what the name implies. But he's our father because of Jesus. And I want to say this very important as I close and the choir comes in. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16 makes the throne so precious. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. Don't be afraid. Yes, I said, the 24 elders, the four majestic living creatures, yes, the vast crystal sea, the lambs, the lights, the voices, the noises. But you and I can come to the throne for us, it's majestic, but it is the throne of grace. You understand? Out of the throne is the God who said grace, grace, compassion, compassion, mercy. Where would we have been? And he sent Jesus Christ, and the Bible tells us the word became flesh, and we beheld his glory. For grace and truth came through Jesus. He not only brings the truth, all have sinned and come short, but grace to say, God is willing to forgive you if you receive life through me. The throne room of grace that we may obtain mercy. And you are here and you're afraid to go to the throne room of grace. Don't lose sight of the fact of the distinctiveness of God Almighty. That he's holy, he's high, he's lifted up. He's precious. People bow down, angels bow down. Seraphims and cherubims, they all bow down. But we go to the throne of grace and we can obtain mercy and find grace in the time of need. Are you here today who's saying, I need help, I need mercy, come to the throne of God. One day we will hear the sound of the trumpet and in a twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. But that doesn't mean we wait, to wait until then. You and I can go before the throne of grace and say, Lord Jesus, because he made a way. And through him and because of him, we can know him, the Almighty, the one who sits, who cannot be described. And we just say to him, Papa, Daddy, and he's as close to you as you are to the Lord Jesus. I pray for your people today, Lord, that we would not lose sight of the fact that you are holy, but you are merciful, you are gracious. And there in the center is the lamb that is on the, in the midst of the throne, the very reason why we have access to you. He makes it all. And I thank you, Father, for Jesus Christ, who leads us and as many as received him, to them gave he power to become sons and daughters of God. And to know him is to know the one who sits on the throne. And to love him is to love God the Father. To accept Jesus as king is to accept Almighty on the throne as king. And Father, he who rejects the Son rejects God. I pray this morning that we would come to you without fear, knowing that you've done all things, that we would be closer. And we hear the words, come 
up hither in our prayer, in our difficult time, to the throne room of grace that we might find mercy and help in the time of need. There are people here with desperate situation just where you are. I'm going to pray this prayer. Whether it be the heart would be touched, whether your spirit would be revived, or your body would be healed today, we come to the throne room of God's grace, and because of the blood and the lamb that was slain, I speak this in the name of Jesus, and speak for the word of healing, revival, born again, and deliverance because of that name. Thank you, Father. Your throne room of grace and mercy in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray that you've been encouraged by the word of the Lord. To learn more, please visit our website, highlandny.org, or our Facebook page, Highland Church, New York. Until next time, may God richly bless you.